That's an appropriate song to enter into the book of Revelation, which we will in a moment. I do want to say that um, that the hands-free workshop has been an encouragement to me over the years, and it just seems to get better and better. Uh, when I, I'm, I'm kind of a step or two away from the teen ministry because I don't have teens and I don't have grandchildren that are teens. And but it's a great encouragement to me to see your work over the years. And it just seems each year it gets better and better. And uh, presenting that award to Dimitri just kind of topped it all off. I think that was a wonderful gesture and a wonderful thing for the, uh, the group to do. So I'm proud of you. You encourage me. I hope that in some way I encourage you also. Uh, Justin Harrison, a moment ago, spoke in the Lord's Supper. And he, um, I wrote down a quote as quickly as I could. So this is almost an exact quote. And it sums up the entire lesson of the day. He said, we do not need to fear the day of the Lord because he has provided the way of escape. And so as we go into this lesson, I'm looking at the verses 17 through 20 of Revelation, where it's, and I've entitled it, Living in the fear of the Lord. And so if if your brain goes off somewhere else and you're wondering what I'm saying, if you'll just remember Justin's quote, we do not have to fear the day of the Lord because he has provided a way of escape, the way of escape. And that's all you remember. It's been you've been blessed to be here. The last lesson that we looked at we looked at the Christ in symbols. And if, you'll, if you weren't here, you can glance back in verses, uh, what were they, 12 through 16. And it describes Jesus in a symbolic way. Symbols point to reality. And you know that's true. And drive down the road, you see symbols all the time. You see a, a symbol that has a, a line that's curving to the left. And that's a symbol saying the road, the reality is going to start moving to the left. And so we don't know what Jesus looks like in the heavenly in his heavenly glory, but I don't think this is a description of his current appearance. When we when we see Jesus in reality, I don't think this is what we're going to see because this is a symbol God trying to tell us something. Later on, it says, I looked, and it describes Jesus again, as a lamb who was slain. So in another symbol, he looks like a lamb, but not just an ordinary lamb, a lamb who was slain. And so here we have this, these symbols. It's trying to communicate something to us. And so the question is, what is God trying to tell us? What is try God trying to say to us as we look at these symbols? Over in Hebrews chapter one, it says in many and various ways, God spoke of old to the prophets. God has used many and various ways to try to communicate to us. He spoke to us. He used angels to speak to us. He used um, object lessons. If you read the the uh, the Bible, there's object lessons that God uses. Uh, he used miracles. He used examples of people. There's so many different ways that God has tried to communicate to us. And here we have a way God is trying to say, I want to tell you something and I want you to listen. And I want you to look at this and you're going to be blessed if you listen 
to what is said and put this into practice. And so here, as we stand back and we look at these symbols of Jesus, we saw Christ as judge. He had a robe of a judge in purity and wisdom. He sees us perfectly. He, he sees into our hearts better than we see ourselves. The burnished bronze of his feet shows strength to judge his enemies. His voice speaks with power. This two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. It's dual judgment. The words come out of his mouth as a sword. We have present judgment and we have final judgment. In John chapter 12, when Jesus was here on the earth, he said these words. He says, as for the person who hears my words, but does not keep them. For the person who listens to me, hears what I'm saying, but he doesn't respect what I'm saying. He doesn't hold to what I'm saying. He doesn't esteem what I'm saying. He doesn't keep what I'm saying. He doesn't obey. I do not judge him. We'd like to stop at the next sentence. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Oh, thank God. There is a judge. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him on the last day. The, that's what that sword is coming out of his mouth. He says there is judgment. This is not saying there is no judgment. He said my purpose on the earth right now is to come to save it. That's why I'm here. But one day the words that I'm speaking, listen, because they will judge you one day. Another thing that God is telling us he, that he is more powerful than any person or any circumstance there were powerful forces that were against the Christians at this time. Persecution had begun. Intense persecution was going to start. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to get in chapter 2. We're going to look at the church in Ephesus. And these people suffered greatly. And we'll see the persecution that they went through or some of the persecution they went through. But the message is that God and Christ is bigger and more powerful than any of these circumstances. When the world seems to be falling apart, when there seems to be no hope, the message is God is in control. He is ultimately in control, and there is great hope in him. And then it says he holds seven stars in his right hand. And when you think of seven of the stars, I think of astrology. You know, the first century people, they believed in the stars, the, the, the fates of the stars. The stars, you, your life is in the hands of the stars. What? How do we say that? I can't remember the t terminology. Uh, your fate is in the stars, something like that. Your future is in the stars. No one helped me, but it's something, like, <laughs> something along that line. And so I think of that, and I think God is saying here that fate does not control you. Astrology does not control you. The stars do not control you. It's all in my hands. Your future is in my hands. And that's hard for us to believe, especially when we're going through struggles and, and trials. Um, a brief explanation of the seven stars. He, he mentions it in verse 20. He says that the stars are the angels of the seven churches. And that you come up with more questions than answers when you start thinking about this. Are these... Heavenly angels protecting the church. Then why is John writing to them? Because each one, he says, to the angel of the church. Why are the messages to the churches addressed to heavenly angels who are in the presence of God or can be spoken to directly? Some say that since the word angel means messenger, 
Then it's addressed to a particular leader in the church, a preacher, an elder, uh, a bishop, someone in the church. And the problem with that is that at this time there wasn't a single leader in a church. The church was led by groups of, of leaders. Others say that it meant that the person who was bringing this message, the person who actually physically brought this message, he was the messenger. And so it was addressed to him. But in a way, that doesn't make sense. Someone who's bringing the message. Why would you address it to an outsider? I think this is my own personal thought. It was to the reader in each church. If you'll remember in verse three, it said, blessed is the one who reads the words of the prophecy. And for us, that that means everyone. Because we all read. There's there's hardly a person, and there are some people, but there's hardly a person in our society that can't read, doesn't read. Uh, But in their day and time, it was just the opposite. There were a few people that read, and most people didn't. And so I think that this is the messenger, this is the person who could read to the congregation. It's addressed to him because he's the first one to be reading it. And so as he reads to the angel of the church of Ephesus... The messenger of the church, the reader of the church, here's what you are to say. And that's my opinion. Uh, And and again, all these opinions uh, 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 create more questions than answers, as I said. No matter what the meaning is, we can understand the point. Each angel is represented by, it represents each church. And there was a message to each church. And so it's talking to those who are in the church. Christ holds the church. Christ holds the faithful people of God in his right hand. And no one can remove them. That's encouraging to us. We are his church. We are his faithful people. And he says, I got you in my right hand. That's my left hand. I got you in my right hand. I was going to your right. That's why I did that. I got you in my right hand. John 10, this reminded me of John 10, verse 27 through 30. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Just try it. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Right after that, they try to kill Jesus for saying that. But he's double. He says it twice here. He says they're in my hand and no one can take them out of my hand. They're in my father's hand. No one can take them out of my father's hand. And so that gives us great comfort to know that we are in the hand of God. We are in the palm of the father and of Jesus. And no one can snatch them. No one can snatch us out of his hand. And this is important as we consider the next few verses In verse 17 through 20, because we're going to look at our encounter with God and God's encounter with us. So let's read together verses 17 through 20 and look at these verses together. When I saw him, this is that vision that we spoke about last week. I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. When we look at this, the first thing I look at is our encounter with God. And it's in the first part of uh, verse 17 and verse 19. And it's described briefly. Our encounter with God, from our perspective, is described briefly in, in these uh, verses. I see a, a reaction and I see a command. You know, at times we sing songs that express a desire to see God. A desire to see God face to face. And Moses had that desire. If you read back in Exodus chapter 33, he wanted to see God. It's a natural longing for the created to seek the creator, to want to see the creator. Moses had seen the burning bush and heard the voice of God. He had gone to uh, Egypt. He had the ten, uh, the ten uh, plagues had taken place. He had seen the power of God. He goes to Sinai and he sees the glory of God on Sinai with the with the earthquake and the the lightning and the smoke and the trembling of the mountain. And he goes up on the mountain and during this time he says, "I want to see your glory." Well, I thought you had seen his glory. He says, "He says God clarifies what he's wanting. He wants to see his face." And he says, "No, you can't see my face." You'll die if you see my face. There's an empty hole in our soul that longs after the only one can, who can feel it. And so we, we're looking for something. Everyone's looking for something. And we want to find it. And, and the people that, that don't even know what it is is God. And they're looking for him. They want to see the face of God. And Moses didn't know what he was asking for. And I don't think we know what we're asking for. Because there is an awful awesomeness to God. Now, that word awful can be taken two ways. Awful as in bad, and an awful as in all, awe, awe, A-W-E, full, full of awe. And that's what I mean by the awful awesomeness of God. I cannot describe this. The Bible cannot describe this. We're given hints at the, at the most of, of the awful, awfulness of God. You know, all goodness, all, and I have that in capital, the, the all goodness comes into the presence of the sometimes good, that's us, is not a good thing. It's a, it's, it can be terrifying. No language or poetry can describe this indescribable God. And the first lesson we must learn is that God is so other, he's, he's so apart, he's so different from us, that if we were to go into his presence, his literal presence right now, we would just die. We would have ceased. We couldn't stand it. We can't live in his literal presence, yet we can't live without him. We seek the very thing that, that, would, that would evaporate us if we came into his presence. Apart from him, we are nothing. We know that. Even if we don't admit it, we know it. We find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. We're lost without him, but we're destroyed if we come too close. And the Bible is filled with warnings. Don't take God lightly. 
Just read from Genesis all the way through. And the, and the examples and the, the, the teaching is don't take my word lightly. Don't take me lightly. Be serious because this is serious stuff. And we could spend a more than a full lesson lessons on this awful awesomeness of God. But instead, I just want to look at John's reaction. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if dead. Boom. Hit the ground. I don't know if he fainted. I don't know if he just, his legs came out from under him. He just lost strength. But as if dead tells me he just, he collapsed. (laughs) He just went straight down. And this is the natural reaction of us humans when we encounter not only God, but the spiritual world. We, we see it all the time. A, a person comes in contact with an angel. The angels aren't really described in the Bible, but comes in contact with angels. What happens? Down they go. And, and the angels, most of the time, if not all the time, say, listen, I'm just a servant like you. Get up. Don't bow down to me. Don't fall down in front of me. I'm just a servant. But that spiritual servant is so awesome And that really should be reserved for God only. But he's so different, so other, that we just collapse in front of the spiritual. And this is our result of God's presence as we fall. But then there's a result of the command. There's a command. John was told, he says, write what's happened, what is happening, and what will happen. And so he's saying, you have something to do when you come into contact and encounter with God. Yes, he's awesome. But there's more to that to that. You have something to do now. And he was told to write. And he talks about the testimony of Jesus back in verse nine. And when we have an encounter with Jesus, we will have something to say. There is something to say. We will have a testimony. We'll have a story. We'll have a message. And that's where you can we looked at that in the very first verses of of Revelation and all through the Bible. He says, you have a story when you've had an encounter with God. If you've had an encounter with God, you will have something to say. But more important than our encounter with God is God's encounter with us. What happens when he comes in contact with us? And here's the amazing, amazing thing. The very first thing it says He placed his right hand on me. God touches his right hand, that hand of power, that hand of strength. And he places it on John. I don't know if it's on his shoulder. I don't know if it's on his head. It doesn't say. I imagine my imagine is like he grabs his shoulder. You know, that's a comfort, an area of comfort when someone puts their arm around your shoulder. But he places that right hand on him. And if this is the only place in the Bible where the touch of God is mentioned, then we could dismiss it. That's that's just between John, who was the beloved disciple, and God, not us. But I said God's encounter with you because this this is God's encounter with us. The touch of Jesus is recorded over and over in the Gospels. He didn't have to touch anyone. And sometimes he shouldn't have, shouldn't have, in quotes, touched people like lepers. But he touched them. And it's a touch of comfort. It's a touch of healing. A man's dead. He's he's being his body's being carried out. And it says, and Jesus reached out and touched the coffin, the the what they were transporting him on. And you don't touch 
the dead in that day and time. And they just, there, there had to be a gasp when he touched and he stopped them and he raised that man from the dead. Touch of Jesus. In the middle of fear, in the middle of reasonable fear, John is touched by the living God. And then he says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. And again, if this was an isolated event, we could just ignore it. Well, he's just talking to John, the beloved disciple. Of course, don't be afraid. And yet this is a constant statement throughout the scriptures over and over. I've read different numbers, but I think it's over 200 times. The Bible says to us, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. It calls us away from fear. He says, don't be afraid of some things. Don't be afraid of circumstances. Don't be afraid of people. Don't be afraid of harm. Don't be afraid of nature. But astonishingly, he says, don't be afraid of God. Huh. How can that be? The lack of fear is not in us. It's natural to be afraid, but it's because of him. Again, this is a Christ-centered message. The lack of fear is on his, on his side, not our side. It's not because we don't, we're not afraid because we're so brave, because we're so powerful, but because of the power, the strength, the mighty God, when he says don't be afraid, we need to listen to him. And he gives the reasons. Here's the reasons. I'm the first and the last. Don't be afraid, his hand goes on him, because I am the first and the last. And this is a parallel to the Alpha and Omega that we read earlier. He's saying, I'm God. I am God. I am deity. I am powerful. I am in control of everything. Don't be afraid. He says, I was dead, but now alive. He says, I've experienced everything you've experienced. I've experienced further than what you've experienced. I've experienced personal death. I'm not a separate God, but one who in every way has been tempted, who has been hurt, who has been abused, who was hungry, who was thirsty, who was tired. I was dead, but now I'm alive. and, And that word alive there, Zoe, means more than just breathing life. It means the full life, everything that life means. I am alive. And he says, and I have, here's another reason don't be afraid. I have the keys of death and Hades. What do keys do? Keys control. Keys open. Keys lock things. And he says, I have the keys to Hades. Now, Hades sometimes means hell. But it most often means the place where dead people go, where the spirits go, the realm of the dead. And this word Hades comes from a Greek legend. There was a god whose name was Hades. And he was over the realm of the dead. And there's all sorts of stories about people trying to get in there and say, you know, bring people out that they loved. And, of course, they fail when they do that because it's God is there to prevent them. And he says, I have the keys to Hades. I rule. Jesus says, not so. Not, there's not, not that Hades there, but me. Your culture says there's a God that rules and keeps people in the realm of the de- dead. And Jesus says, uh-uh. I have the keys. 
not some myth named Hades. There's no need to be afraid because I unlock and lock the door to death in Hades. And so we come to this reason when we look at this, don't be afraid. And these reasons, sometimes I look at these reasons and say, well, maybe those are reasons to be afraid. And so I have to listen to God here when he says, don't be afraid because I'm the first and the last. Because I'm the living one. Because I was dead and now I'm alive. So don't be afraid. And I have to ask myself, well, why not? Because my tendency is to be afraid. And so I, I want to look at a choice that we have between the fear of God and the afraidness of God. And I believe these are two different things. The fear of God and the afraidness of God. Some of our words have two meanings. Awful has two meanings. I just explained that to you. It can be bad and it can be good. Fear can be bad and it can be good. And so I want to try, try my best in a very short uh, few minutes, try to explain the difference between fear of God and afraidness of God. When we hear the words, do not be afraid, many are uncomfortable with that because we're taught to fear God. And then we go to the Greek and we say, well, maybe it's a different word and it's not. He says, the word is phobos, which is we get our word phobia from. And so he says, don't be phobos. And then he says, be phobos. So what am I to do? It's the same word, just like the English word. The English word is fear. And there's not two different words to describe these two different concepts. And so you have to look at the context. The context is important in the meaning. Sometimes as you read this. Uh, throughout throughout the whole Bible, as you read it, sometimes the Bible says describes this word as physical terror. All right, it means absolutely out of your mind fear. All right, the disciples are in a boat. The storm is coming up. They're about to drown, and it says they were ter- they saw Jesus. They thought it was a ghost. They were terrified. All right, that's this afraidness. They're out of their mind afraid. Sometimes it's a milder form of fear. Sometimes it means something quite different from afraid. It means awe. Sometimes the Bible describe, will try to, uh, try to uh, translate it in awe or reverence. And yet those words are inadequate. Awe and reverence. How can you fear God and yet not be afraid of God? Because we're called to do both. We're called to fear God and not be afraid. And further, our problem is if we teach, do not be afraid of God, then to some, that means you can live the way you want to. Well, I just do what I want to because there's no fear. I don't have to fear God. I don't have to be afraid of God. Sin is nothing. God is love. He won't punish. He won't judge. So why be afraid of God? That's how our thinking goes. We're all muddled. <laughs> our, our thinking is wrong. Passages tell us over and over. Do not be afraid. Passages tell us over and over. Live in the fear of the Lord. This dichotomy that we have, this tension, we find it difficult to resolve. And part of our struggle is this. I think it's far easier for me to control others with fear If I can make you do what I think is best, as long as I keep an iron hand on you, as long as I use that fear, I can control you. 
But it's only, it only lasts as long as I can keep the pressure on. And there's a place for it, okay? I, I used to teach school. If you did not instill afraidness of the teacher the first day of, of teaching, and maybe you're a better teacher than I was, you lose control of your class for the entire year. I tried being the nice guy the first year, and it was a disaster. <laughs> and so I read a book said, Do not, that was entitled, Do Not Smile Before Thanksgiving. It was to teachers. <laughs> and it was that instill fear in your, in, in your uh, uh, students, and then they will respect you. And so we, we translate that right into God that if, you're, if we're not afraid of them, we can't respect them. That's how we think. And yes, well, let me say this. The Bible then says, but there's no fear in love, 1 John 4, 18. And so there's no love in fear. Can we live without afraidness and yet live in the fear of the Lord? And I think the answer is yes. The fear of the Lord or the fear of God will keep us from sin. The, and, and think about this. But the afraidness of God will cause you to sin. I believe the afraidness of God will eventually cause you to sin. And it might not be a moral sin because we're too afraid of that. But it's going to be the hypocrisy, the hiding sins. Because we're afraid the fear of God will cause you to live an upright life. But the afraidness of God will cause you to live in darkness. You'll hide. When you're afraid, you hide. And here's the key. It's all based in relationship. And we're going to see this in just a moment. Because the afraidness and the fear of God are both based in relationship. Let me talk about the fear of God. In Judaism, this is the Old Testament... The words fear of God were a way of saying religious or religion. It meant the whole of righteous living God's way. It didn't mean afraidness of God. It meant fear of God meant the righteous way of God. Ethical, moral living as expressed, as taught by God. Fear of God was wrapped up in the life of God. Whatever God did, whatever way God lived, that was, and I lived in that, I was living in the fear of God. And you can see this in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Let me give you a little less, lesson on parallelism. Uh, the way the, many of the Psalms and Proverbs are written is there'll, there'll be one line that states something in the second line is stating the same thing is in parallel. And so he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And I've highlighted it for you. The fear of the Lord is the same thing as the knowledge of the Holy One. Wisdom is the same thing as understanding. You can see that very quickly, the wisdom and understanding. You say, ah, I see how that's parallel. But the fear of the, law of the Lord is the same thing as the knowledge of the Holy One. And it's not book knowledge. It's not just understanding things about God. This word knowledge means I'm in a relationship with Him, an intimate relationship with Him. So when I'm in an intimate, close, personal relationship with God that's based on things that have come into my mind and experiences, 
It's based uh, in the knowledge, the head knowledge that I've received from the, the word of God. But it's more than just that. It's a, a relationship with him. When I have a relationship with God, I have fear. I have the fear of the Lord, not afraidness. See, you automatically go to afraidness. No, but the fear of the Lord is just my relationship with him. Let me give it this way. I don't have this in my notes. Uh, I have the fear of Julia. Did you all know I have the fear of Julia in my life? It's a relationship. It's the knowledge of Julia. It's a relationship. It's not afraidness of Julia. It's a fear of Julia. And let me go on ahead and, and, and explain this more. Living in the fear of the Lord means everything God says is right. It means everything God says is pure and it's holy. The fear of the Lord means God is right all the time. And I feel good about it. It's a good thing because I know what is right and I know what's wrong because I'm living in the fear of the Lord. Every do that he says and every don't that God gives me is the right do and the, wrong, and the right don't. So when I read in the scriptures and it says don't do this and I go, well, I'm not sure that's right. And I live in the fear because God says don't do it. I know it's right. And God says do this and I know it's right. And I'm living in the fear of the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord is learning to do everything God's way because it's right. And it's the only way. And if I do it God's way, I'm living in the fear of the Lord. I'm doing it as God wants me to do it. Living in the fear of the Lord recognizes that God is judge. God is a judge. He judges now, right on this earth right now. Judgment of God is taking place in small ways. But the judgment, the ultimate judgment of God will take place in the end and it will be right and it'll be good when he does it. You know, we sit there and say, well, would it be fair if God, you know, judged, you know, sent this person to hell? And God, whatever God does is right. And so whatever he does, I'm not going to sit there and argue with God on the day of judgment and say, well, have you, have you considered? His eyes see right through us. He knows. And so whatever he says, we're all going to be saying, wow, hallelujah, great. Wonderful. Your, your judgment is just. It's good. Living in the fear of the Lord is to rejoice in his coming, looking forward to his coming. You see that right at the end of Revelation. It's to seek his will right now. I want to know what you want me to do right now. I hunger and I thirst for your righteousness in this life right now and in the life of other people. That's the fear of the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord means I'm growing in maturity. I'm learning to love like God loves. I'm learning to be like Christ. I'm trying to grow up into him. That's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is recognizing I'm a weak person. I'm sinful. I rely on you. I, I have no other hope except through you. I rely on your blood that purifies me and cleanses me. That's living in the fear of the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord means being merciful. It means being gentle. It means being kind. It means being humble. That's the fear of the Lord. How I live my life. Living in the fear of the Lord is moment by moment awareness of my need for God and a life of constant repentance. Have you just walked down the road and you realize, you know, that was a that was a stinky attitude. And you change. You repent. You, you say, God, that was wrong of me. That's the fear of the Lord. 
You're living in the fear of the Lord, not the afraidness of God that he's going to strike you down, but that you want to be like Christ. You want to be like God. You're seeking his will. And so you're in the fear of the Lord. And when you realize you're doing something wrong, you repent. The fear of the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord is based in a God initiated relationship, a God empowered fellowship, a God sustained life. It's a God centered way of living. That's the fear of the Lord. Do you know that Jesus lived in the fear of the Lord? Did you know that? Jesus was not. You, you, was Jesus afraid of God? Was Jesus afraid of the Father? As you read through the book of John, the Gospels, do you ever get that sense that he's, that he's afraid of God? I don't. I get the sense that he's connected to God. He's one with God. He understands God. He's seeking God's will. And that's what we find that Jesus lived in the fear of the Lord. Let me show you this. Isaiah chapter 11. Right here, verse 2 and 3. We're talking about Jesus here in prophecy. It says, The Spirit of the Lord, and that's a uh, cap, it should be capitals there, the Spirit of Yahweh, the Father, will rest upon him. And that's talking about Jesus. And then it begins describing him the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge, hmm, and of the fear of the Lord. And if he didn't get it, he repeats it. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Can you delight in the afraidness of God? I'm so glad I'm afraid of God. Can you delight in it? Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord because it meant all these things and more than that I've been saying. It meant this life of living the way God wants me to live. It's looking at his directions, looking at his principles, looking at his laws, looking at everything that he says and saying, that's right. That's good. That's holy. I want that. That's the fear of the Lord. The fear of God means living God's way. And it begins the moment you wake up. I've said this before, but I, I know people don't listen sometimes. And some people are first time visitors. But the very first person you see in the morning, you need to live in the fear of the Lord with that person. And that's where we mess up. Because we treat our, and I'll talk to husbands, the fear of the Lord means taking Ephesians chapter 5 something, 20 something. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. And he served her and he presented her to himself as this radiant bride, holy, without spot, you know, without blemish. Do we look at our wives that way? Do we present her to ourselves as, man, you're, you're just the best? Or do we say, woman, go get my socks or whatever? <laughs> And that's how we see we we're not living in the fear of the Lord. We're not treating our wife with love and humility and gentleness and kindness. And if you're not kind to your wife, you are not living in the fear of the Lord. Sorry for preaching the gospel. If wives are not submitting to their husbands the way God calls you to, you are not living in the fear of the Lord. You're living the way you want to live. 
I, I, I could keep going. I, I have to stop. All right. Uh, take up your cross and follow me. What is that? That's living in the fear of the Lord. It's saying I'm going to do it God's way and not my way. And it's the best way. That's why I'm doing it. I'm, it's wonderful. It's not walking around saying, oh, if I don't love my wife, God's going to strike me dead and send me to hell. That's not the fear of the Lord. That's the afraidness of God. The fear of the Lord is God has set up marriage this way and it's wonderful. And I know it's best. Even when she's irritating me, I know it's best. And I'm going to live in the fear of the Lord. I'm going to delight in the fear of the Lord. Did Jesus always like what he was doing? No. Did he always delight in what he was doing? Yes. He delighted in the fear of the Lord. When he went to the cross, that was walking to the cross in the fear of the Lord. For his love for us, that's the fear of the Lord. All right, I've got to stop. Not being afraid, let me say this, not being afraid of God does not mean flippancy or a cavalier attitude toward God. If that's your attitude toward God, I can do what I want, God's way, my way, you're not living in the fear of the Lord. It's the difference between living a life in the fear of hell or as a follower of Christ. The afraidness of God is the fear of hell. The fear of the Lord is I'm a follower of Christ. Following Christ is living in the fear of the Lord, not the afraidness of God. Our problem is we don't know how to teach people to follow Christ. We only know how to teach them to flee hell. That's our problem. Should they flee hell? Yes. Should they follow Christ? More so. And our problem is we really don't know how to teach people to follow Christ. We know how to scare them out of hell, but we don't know how to teach them to follow Christ. And that's what this, this, this book is about. That's what the gospel is about. Afraidness is natural. But God calls us to the supernatural. And he says, I want to be in a love-based relationship with you. And that's the fear of the Lord. Not the afraidness. He says, don't be afraid. Afraidness of God will keep me from doing bad things. But the fear of God not only keeps me from sin, but motivates me to do what's right and what's good. See, you, you, for you to do right and good and live in the afraidness of God, you're going to have to have someone over your shoulder all the time keeping you afraid so you keep doing the right thing. You come to church because you're afraid not to. And as soon as the wife leaves or the mom leaves or whatever, you're not going to come to church anymore. All right? Afraidness of God will cause you to sin. It's a, it's a, I don't, this is a, negative motivations are good. So I chose the wrong word. I don't know what word to use here. Uh, destructive. I think afraidness will eventually be destructive. Whereas fear of the Lord is constructive because it tells us what to do. Not only what not to do, but it tells us what to do. Romans 8, verse 15 and 16 says it this way. You can see this relationship here. For you do not receive the spirit. He's talking to Christians, people who have become in, come into this relationship of the fear of the Lord. He says, you didn't receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. That's where you were. You were in the afraidness of God. And he didn't bring you out of that relationship to make you a slave again to afraidness. But you received the spirit of sonship. And that's the fear of the Lord. And by him we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. That's the fear of the Lord. 
When I'm living as God's child, doing the right thing and not doing the wrong things, I'm living in the fear of the Lord. Not because of my afraidness of him, but because of my relationship with him as his child. And so the question is, do you have a relationship with God? If you don't have a relationship with God, and I mean by that that you have come to him knowing that you are a sinful person and you cannot make it without him. You've repented, as, as, uh, as uh, Justin almost read in Acts chapter 2, you have repented and you've been immersed, washing away your sins. If you're not in that relationship with him, afraidness of God is right. You should be afraid of God. Because one day you're going to stand before him with just yourself and you're going to present to God yourself and you're going to say, look, all the good that I've done on this earth. And he's going to say, "Okay, yeah, that was good. But what about all this bad? What about all this sin? How are you going to take care of that? Well, let me work it off. Yeah, right. And so you should be afraid to stand in front of the judgment seat of God and stand there before him with nothing but yourself. The afraidness of God is appropriate. But if we stand before God in the fear of the Lord and he looks at us and he says, oh, you've been washed in my son's blood. Come on in. Welcome. Good and faithful servant. I haven't been that faithful. In fact, the Bible says God is faithful and I'm unfaithful. That's true. I am. But I, I have been clothed, Galatians 3, with, when I was baptized, I was clothed with Christ. And I'm wearing the faithfulness of Christ. I'm wearing the purity of Christ. And so I come before him, not saying, look at what I've done, but look at what Christ has done. That's the difference. That's the fear of the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord. We've all been touched by the awful awesomeness of God. Psalms 104 says this, that a touch from God and the mountains smoke. Amos chapter 9 verse 5 says, God's touch, the land melts. I've been fascinated by the uh, volcano. I can't find a good uh, website about the volcano that's going on in Hawaii. I, I like to go, but I don't have time or money. But I, like, I would like to go there to see the awesomeness of that lava come bubbling out of the, I mean, 200 feet out of the, out of the ground. But I, I'm smart enough to know the awful awesomeness of that beautiful sight. I want to stay far away from it because it will melt me if I touch it. And so if we're without Christ, it's like touching hot lava. The land melts. But if we have a, well, we have a relationship with him, what is that touch? A hand on the shoulder. Don't be afraid. Get up because you have some things to do. Some things that, you, that happened, is happening, and will happen. That's your life. So get up. Don't be afraid. If you're afraid of God.